Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, Matthew 17. Today we come to a passage dealing with the failure of faith, and um, it's uh, poignant for us if you are in any way aware of what's taking place around us. You, if you read uh, about the shifts, the major shifts taking place in our society and culture, there are numerous, uh, numerous books that have come out in recent years sort of detailing this from different angles, but all of them essentially talking about how this massive shift has, has taken place in, in the worldview of Western society. And if you wanted to summarize it all, it, it basically could be summarized as a transition from the transcendent to the imminent. That is to say, this sort of understanding, this assumption that the world and, and everything by, uh, that, that makes it up is, is known by what is seen and what is touched and what is measured, that is the, the imminent, versus that which is beyond us, outside of us, outside of the universe. Now, there has been um, a persistent attempt to sort of build this worldview where everything that we can know and everything that we need to know is found in space and time. Uh, There is no need for faith any longer in this world that we live in. You don't have to believe. You certainly don't have to believe in anything beyond this world. You may believe in yourself or you may believe in some sort of ideal that you formulate in your mind, but there has been a clear attempt to eliminate God from not just our institutions and not just our public discourse, but even more recently, even from our own consciences. Some of you may have heard this week or this month, I should say, about a couple of British citizens who were arrested for praying on the street, literally just silently praying, and yet they were praying in zones of their country or their cities that were forbidden, not allowed to express your faith. Not allowed to even quietly hold your faith as you pray in your heart. Now, this is the world increasingly around us. And if you are a believer living in the midst of this, you understand uh, the challenges of living out your faith or holding to your faith. Our mandate is to walk by faith, not by sight. That is to say, we are banking our entire eternity, and indeed our life in this world. We're banking it on a God that we've never seen, on a Savior we've never seen, on a Holy Spirit that we've never seen. We build our whole lives on these realities that are not seen. They are transcendent. This is what Hebrews tells us about faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, of things not seen. So we believe in reality. It's reality so strong that they could only be described as conviction. And we shape our entire lives around them, the conviction of who God is as he presents himself in the scripture, uh, a conviction in who Christ is, a conviction that God is the one true and living God. All the while... This entire world around us is operating as if none of those things are true and pressuring us to conform in our own operations to the same reality. 
So the pressure, you might say, has never been greater for you or for me to set aside our faith. It's never been greater for us to live our lives by this materialistic worldview that the only things that exist, the only things that really matter are the things that you can see and measure and know materially. Not to say that faith has ever been easy because it's always been the orientation of the human heart to walk by faith, to live by the things that are in our grasp or in our control. It might manifest itself somewhat more scientifically today. We might even say it might manifest itself more secularly today. But it's always been there, always been this sort of, this sort of temptation to live by what you can see and what you can control. In past times, it might have manifested itself religiously, but it was still a religion that you could control, a religion that you could work out by your own deeds, by your own works, by your own sacrifices or whatever it might be. There's always been the, the, the bent in all of humanity to live as if God did not exist or as if God was under our control ultimately. Well, today we come to a passage that drops us right into that kind of conflict. A conflict, if you will, between those two sort of realities. The realities of sight versus the realities of faith. And what we find here is a battle for the minds of Jesus' apostles and his disciples that isn't just applicable to them, it's applicable to all of us. But we see them in the midst of a, a war, a war of faith, a war to believe the right things in spite of everything that they may see or not see or, or any of those things. And it involves a story of a father bringing a demon-possessed son to Jesus or to his apostles, really, so that they could heal him. And what uh, they experience is uh, really a, a major failure in their faith. A failure because for at least this period of time, they're not prepared to walk by faith. They're still too really busy walking by sight. And that's the whole point of this passage, getting them ready to do exactly what they need to do when Jesus passes off the scene. To live in this world without the visible Christ, without the present Christ, to live in this world by faith the way God designed them to. Now, we can pick up the story in verse 14. It says, When they came to a crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's in an, he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. 
For truly I say to you, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will be moved. And nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This, um, this whole event takes place on the heels of what we looked at last week, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus had gone up, you remember, with three other disciples, and there he was transformed in front of them. And uh, while they were there on the mountain, these other disciples were down at the foot, if you will, while three of them were sort of getting a preview of God's glory, these other nine were down there doing battle with the forces of darkness. And in the midst of that, they clearly fail. They fail in their role and in their task and in their faith, partly because of the ongoing resistance of the crowd, but partly because of their own sort of obtuseness, their own dullness to what Jesus has been trying to teach them all along. And the whole episode illustrates how unprepared they really are for what awaits them ahead, the crucifixion, the eventual resurrection, and then the departure of Christ, when they no longer are going to have the joys and the benefits of the physical presence of the Lord. And Jesus, of course, knew all of this, and He wanted to continue to drive home to them the realities that are going to guide them, the lessons that they're going to need to know and understand about how to live in this world without the visible Christ. And this healing of a demon-possessed boy provides kind of fertile ground to teach them all that. It's a story that once again illustrates Jesus' might as a healer over the afflictions that face uh, so many people, but it also grapples with the frustrations of following God, of trusting God when your faith is seriously challenged, not only by your own weaknesses, by your own doubts, but even by the doubts of other people around you. I, I think as we look at this passage, you can identify four factors that were leading to their failure of faith that are, are outlined here, beginning in verse 14 through 16, with just simply the opposition of the world, the unbelieving world around us. Matthew tells us that they came to this crowd that is coming down the mountain. They came to this crowd, and this man comes with his son saying to Jesus, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And he, he gives a little bit of the, the details here about what his son was experiencing. He, he says he was experiencing epilepsy or had seizures, um, and he um, falls sometimes into, into this uh, fit, and when he does so, sometimes he throws himself into the fire or sometimes even into water. We have from the other accounts from Mark, for example, in Mark chapter 9, verse 18, more details. He grinds his teeth. His body becomes stiff and rigid. He foams at the mouth. You might read all that and conclude that this is a classic case of epilepsy. This is just an, sort of an ancient group of people who are seeing these kind of, kind of phenomenon taking place in someone and assumed, because they didn't understand the neuro, uh, sort of the neurological condition of what was taking place in the brain and the nervous system, uh, they just assumed that this must be a demon, and so they talk about it as a demon-possessed boy. 
But Mark doesn't end with just that. He tells us that in addition to all these other symptoms, the boy was completely mute. That is to say, he, he hasn't spoken a word. And not only that, he hasn't spoken a word since he was a child. That's not necessarily a symptom of epilepsy. This is, in fact, the got telltale signs of demon possession. Muteness was a regular occurrence with demon possessions. It, it, the, one of the strategies, you might say, one of the tactics of demons was to impede communication, to cut off relationship in order to dampen hope. And even the kind of self-destructive behavior that Matthew talks about here. He throws himself frequently into the water and into the fire. That's what demons do with demon-possessed people. That's one of the ways that you identify them. They make these attempts to destroy the host that they're dwelling in. In this case, trying to cause the boy to drown himself or burn himself. Regardless of whatever the symptoms are, though, the man says that he brought them to Jesus' apostles and they couldn't help. The nine who were there, who were left at the foot of the mountain, weren't able to do anything. We also learn from Mark 9 that not only was this man kind of there begging and pleading the disciples, and not only did the crowd gather around them, but Mark tells us that there were scribes there arguing with the apostles. Probably they had been proclaiming boldly Jesus' power and His salvation, telling everyone about His greatness. And so this man now comes with this young boy wanting to respond, wanting to see if the things that they've been saying are true. And they get a little bit embarrassed. And then these religious leaders come up and try to seize on their weakness and their failure to discredit their message to discredit their so-called Savior, and it all sort of breaks down into an argument. This is why Jesus responds the way He does in verse 17. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. That's a rebuke not of the disciples. It's a rebuke of all the people who are responding this way the, faith, the, the disciples, they may have had weak faith, but they were not faithless. They were not unbelieving. That's literally what the word means, without faith, a generation without faith. This is a rebuke of all those people who were, because of this particular incident, making assumptions, maybe making arguments about God. He calls them twisted and perverted, basically a word for bending something out of shape. It talks about deviating from the standard. They were, they were twisted away from the truth. These were unbelieving people and their unbelief was, was stemming from a twisted view, a perverted view of the world, a perverted view of the truth, a perverted view of themselves. They were unbelieving and their unbelief uh, was stemming not primarily from the fact that they didn't have evidence or that they didn't have reason to believe. It was stemming primarily from the fact that they had twisted and perverted hearts and minds. They were unbelieving and twisted. Now that was a description not only of this crowd, but really every person 
born in this world through every generation. In fact, the same language is used by Paul in Philippians chapter 2 when he reminds us to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Exact same words there. Every generation, to some degree or another, manifests this crookedness and this perversity in the human heart. Proverbs 2 sort of talks about this. It expands on it. It says that wisdom and discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the path of uprightness to walk in ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. So this is the kind of moral twistedness, the kind of moral perversion, the spiritual mind that Jesus is talking about when he talks about a faithless and twisted generation, a generation who are, who are uh, born in this world's generation, not so much chronologically, but um, you know, we might say linked by similar nature, the entire group of people who are born in this world who similarly twist and pervert their moral mindset, they're not just deniers of Christ, they're deniers of righteousness. They will not uh, accede to the realities of the pain of their own sin, of what's happening in their own life. They won't admit to what they're doing to themselves. They're perverse in that way. They just go from one failed attempt at happiness to the next failed attempt at happiness, and they continue all along the way, twisting up and, and mixing up and mangling their own life and never wanting to admit the truth of it. This is the mindset of an unbeliever. Ephesians 4 says it's futile. It's futile. That is to say it doesn't accomplish its purposes. Promises hope and happiness, but never, never really achieves it. It's darkened in its understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance in them and because of the hardness of their heart. They have hardened their heart against the truth. And because they have built that wall and will not simply accept the truth of God, their life is filled with futility after futility. Their sinful interests overtake their reasoning, overtake their imagination, overtake their motives and their judgments and even their emotions. And it all becomes twisted and distorted to varying degrees. A whole thinking process is darkened and ignorant and hardened against the truth. This, by the way, is why the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. If you cannot acknowledge God, if you can't make intellectual sort of, if you can't submit to Him, then you cannot make intellectual sense out of the world you live in. You can't make intellectual sense out of yourself as an image bearer. And everything becomes twisted. This is the secular mindset. The mindset that operates by sight, 
not by faith. Now, if you want even deeper insight into what's going on here, you could look at Mark chapter 9, over in Mark 9, verse 19. You have the the parallel passage here, and, and you realize it wasn't just the scribes, and it wasn't just the religious leaders, and it wasn't just the crowd, but even the man who's bringing his son, Jesus calls them there in verse 19, a faithless generation. And it says in verse 20, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, that is when the demon saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. In other words, Jesus is telling him, the problem is not with me. What do you mean, if you can? The problem is not with me. The problem is with you. It's not a question of whether I'm able. I mean, that is... In some ways, an offensive statement to make about God. It's not a question of whether I'm able. It's a question of whether or not you can believe. It's a question of whether or not you can look beyond the visible realities of the trial that you're in the midst of. The problem God is telling him is not with me, it's with you. So even this father is a part of this twisted generation and faithless Generation. He's questioning Jesus. He's questioning his abilities. And it's not hard to imagine that this was all taking place. The argument was all happening when Jesus walked up on it and the disciples had been engaged in this. They were arguing and apparently had been somewhat intimidated by this whole thing. This was probably one of the biggest challenges to their faith yet. And in the face of it, it's obvious that their faith was faltering and it was failing. The criticisms of a materialistic world, an unbelieving world, had caused them to falter. That's part of the explanation of what's going on here, but Jesus hints at another part in in a statement of exasperation in verse 17. It wasn't just this opposition from the unbelieving world that led to their failure was also the absence of their Savior. That's what Jesus gets at when He says, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring Him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of Him, and the boy was healed instantly. This is as close as the sound of frustration that you'll ever hear coming from the lips of Christ. It's exasperation. He's wondering out loud, I mean, how long do I have to be with you for you to finally believe? How long is it necessary for me to physically be here? How long are you going to have that luxury? He knew what was coming. He knew his crucifixion was just months away. He knew that he would die and be raised from the dead and ascend back into heaven not long after this. And so he's just asking the question in response to their unbelief, and he's making the point, I won't always physically be around. 
And the implication is I don't have to be. I don't have to be around. You shouldn't need me to be around in order to believe. It shouldn't be necessary for them to exercise faith in God for this particular miracle. Jesus had already commissioned the apostles to do this, to be able to work these kinds of miracles. It shouldn't be necessary for Him to be there. But apparently it was. And for these apostles, this little incident when Jesus had gone up on the mountain and left them uh, sort of in the midst of the wolves, if you will, was a test case for them about whether they were ready for what was ahead, what, what they would experience in just a few short months. And this event becomes a case study, not just for them, but for every Christian, that once the Lord departs this earth and you and I continue to live on here, the question sort of still rings for us, is it necessary? Is it necessary for me to be with you? For you to believe. Peter says no. Later on, he'll tell believers in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's our position right now. We don't have the joy of the physical presence of Jesus among us. We have never seen Him. You have never looked into His face. You've never taken a meal together, a walk together, spent any kind of physical time together. You've never heard the physical sound of His voice. And yet, Peter says, you love Him. You believe in Him. You rejoice in Him with joy inexpressible. That doesn't make sense to the world around you. It doesn't make sense to your loved ones. They don't understand why you care so much for someone you've never seen. Your loved ones, don't, they, don't, they don't understand why you are so sort of bought in for someone that you've never touched, you've never physically met. And yet this is who we are as believers. We believe without seeing. We walk by faith, not by sight. You remember John 2, 29, 20, excuse me, 20, 29, where Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are they who do not see me and yet believe. Jesus understood what was coming. He understood he was going away and he understood the challenge that would face these apostles who at this point had the luxury of being able to see him, but soon would not. And they would have to walk the same way that you and I walk. They would have to believe the same way that you and I believe when he's no longer around, no longer able to see. They would have to remember the words that he spoke, all the lessons that he taught. They'd have to remember all the beauty and loveliness of his life. In fact, they would have to meditate on those things day after day so that their faith would not wane and would not grow cold, but their faith would grow and their love would grow for Christ day after day. 
And now you, you and I, we accept their testimony. We accept the testimony of these 12 men. We accept the testimony of the 500 people who met Jesus after his resurrection and formed the early church and gave testimony to his resurrection. We accept, we believe their testimony. We understand everything that they've said about him and we understand what he's saying here. It's not necessary to have him here with us physically in order to believe. It's not necessary to have him here with us physically in order to love him and trust him. The vast majority of the crowds who had received the blessings of Christ during his life, they didn't understand this and they never would. In fact, the apostles still needed to learn this. They still weren't ready. And all of this grieved Jesus. It grieved Him. How long must I be with you for you to trust me? He tells them to bring the boy, and they do, and He casts the demon out as quickly as He had any other time, just demonstrating His divine power. No elaborate ritual, no sort of sort of exercise of any kind of incantation, no fanfare, just the power of God once again on display. But then you'll notice in verse 19, the disciples come to him privately. And now we get even more insight into their failure. Third factor, you might say, that led to the failure of their faith, which is the frustration that they were feeling because of their own personal failure. Their own weakness, their own failure. They apparently had expected to be able to do this. They had expected to be able to cast the demon out, but they couldn't. And it's kind of easy to understand why they might have expected it, because back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had commissioned them. Remember, He had sent them out throughout all the land of Israel. And He says in verse 1 of Matthew 10, He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. They had already done this before. They had seen the power working before. And so now they're perplexed. Their failure is perplexing to them. And they're asking themselves, what went wrong? Why couldn't we cast Him out? Kind of feeling frustrated. I'm sure feeling defeated feeling like they might not ever measure up, never be strong enough. Jesus summarizes the problem. It's because, He says, of the littleness of your faith. The littleness of your faith. Which is, it's not always clear exactly what He's talking about here, but He he goes on with an explanation in verse 20. Truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So he uses this sort of hyperbolic language, this exaggerated language to to speak about the scope of the capabilities of God to respond to their faith. 
And of course, the point in all this, the point in the exaggerated language is not that God is going to give you whatever you want or whatever you claim by faith. There are plenty of passages in Scripture that sort of balance this out and help us to realize that God doesn't indulge every foolish and carnal desire of our heart. 1 John 5 says that this is the confidence we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So, so this isn't sort of a carte blanche statement about your capabilities to do anything. The point that Jesus is making here is that there's no limitation on the part of God's power. We're not, we're not uh, limited by God's power. We're really limited in terms of our faith. And I know it may sound like Jesus is pointing to their sort of the size of their faith. But if you understand what he's saying here, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, which is really, really small, really the size of the tip of a writing pen, that's how big a a mustard seed is. You might think that he's saying, well, if you had that much faith, but you have faith as kind of half of that or maybe a quarter of that, you have really just this microscopic kind of a faith and what you need to do is you need to kind of build that, that faith. You need to double it. You need to triple it. You might imagine that that's kind of what he's saying, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you guys need to sort of double up on your faith. He's telling them all you need is an ounce of faith. You don't need much. All you need is, is an ounce. And, and the problem is you're not... You're not even using that. You're not exercising faith at all. That's the point. Because if you had just a little bit, this would be all you need. Just a little bit is all you need. The issue is never going to be the size of your faith. It's always going to be the size of your God. And the point for these guys is that they were not really connecting to that God. In fact, it becomes more clear again in Mark's gospel when we know Jesus' words, when they ask him this, you know, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Meaning that they weren't using prayer. Not, not, not talking about prayer at the moment of the exorcism. Not that there needed to be some sort of ritual or incantation. We know that because Jesus had just cast the demon out of the boy and he didn't pray. He didn't pray on the spot. It wasn't that they had to sort of close their eyes and lift up their hands or do any kind of wacky sort of statements or anything like that. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a life of prayer. The entire life of prayer, the kind of life he was living. He had just spent the night on the mountain praying all night long in preparation for what was ahead of him. And this was apparently what was missing in their life. This is, this is, the, this is the, the, the grain of faith they weren't even living out. And he's telling them, this is your little faith. This is almost, almost completely absent faith. It's not faith necessarily that's exercised in the moment of battle. It's a faith that's exercised leading up to it. And he says that's barely noticeable in your lives. 
If you had walked with these guys throughout the course of their day from sunup to sundown, you would hardly have noticed it. You certainly would have noticed it in terms of a life of prayer, apparently. That was absent, Jesus was saying. You didn't have the necessary prayer, the necessary prayer life to be able to cast out this kind of demon. It didn't require a massive amount of faith. But that faith, no matter how small it is, even if it's a sign of a mustard seed, it had to be operable in your life. It had to be, it had to be there consistently. A small, consistent faith is so much more valuable to God than some momentary, heroic stand. That's the way you and I kind of imagine ourselves. We kind of just sit back and dream, you know, you know when, the, when the sort of the assault is at the gates, when the people are coming for my loved ones, whenever the church is being stormed, I'm going to be there. I'm going to stand strong. It's that moment, it's sort of the momentary heroic faith where we like to picture ourselves. But what Jesus is talking about is the small but consistent daily faith. So he wants them to understand it's not the size of your faith, it's the size of your God. He's always going to be able to do whatever he has to do. All you need is just an ounce of faith. And if their heart had been resolutely focused on their God, if their heart had been resolutely sort of meditating and fellowshipping with him in prayer, they would have had all the power they needed from him when they needed it. But there's one final factor that led to the failure of their faith that Jesus wants to deal with in verse 22, which is the distress of of trial. This is nothing compared to what they're about to go through. This sort of opposition, this kind of arguing, and this kind of sort of casting doubt on their God from this crowd, this is nothing He says in verse 22, as they gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Jesus takes the opportunity to emphasize to them that that he's about to be taken away from them. He had already been saying this to them. He told them that a week earlier before they went up the mountain. Now, now he's telling them, time is coming. When you're going to have to live out your faith, when you're going to have to walk in this faith, and I'm not going to be around, if you're going to accomplish anything, you're going to have to learn these lessons. And the closer he gets to that time, the more frequently he's warning them about this, that they're going to have to walk by faith and not by sight. He knew that they weren't ready for this. He knew they were still operating on sort of their preconceived conceptions of the way God was going to work in their lives. He knew that, that, that this stuff was going to be upsetting, could potentially rattle their trust in God, not, not because God had let them down, but because they had formulated a false view of God and a false view of His will or a false view of His blessings 
The disappointment, in other words, wasn't coming from God. The disappointment was coming from their own unmet expectations. And really, at a time when things should have been sort of ringing true for them, Jesus had predicted his sufferings. And as they saw it unfold, it should have been bolstering their confidence and turning their attention to the full scope of everything that he promised, including his resurrection. At a time when they should have been seeing all of Jesus' words fulfilled and all of the Old Testament prophecies about the suffering Messiah fulfilled, when it should have been a time for their thinking to, becoming, to be uh, becoming more and more clear, it, was becoming, it became, I should say, a time of deep darkness for them. And they were shocked. Even here, it says they were distressed even hearing this. They didn't realize how unprepared they were. See, they had confused God's kindness to them with their faithfulness and trust in Him. Because they had been living in the blessing of His nearness. They assumed that those blessings were one and the same with their faithfulness to Him. It's not the same. They didn't realize that their victories were not because of them, but because of Him. And they weren't ready for the next lesson in faith. But Jesus is going to keep teaching them. He's going to keep trying to expose them to the truth about Him, about His will, about His kingdom, so that at any time when they did hear about the cross and the suffering and what was in store, they would also remember the resurrection. They would turn their heart to the full scope of everything that he's been saying. Then they're ready by faith. Then they're ready to accept the will of God to live out their life in this world. A world that is opposed to their worldview, a world that is materialistic, a world that is faithless and perverted. But they'll be ready, even with an ounce of faith. Or this is a rebuke to us, this text, to our own weak and inconsistent faith. And yet faithful are the wounds of a friend. You have called us your friends and how much more should we trust you who cares for us so consistently. But we are too much like these disciples. We are too much prone to walk in this world around us governed by its criticisms, assuming all along your kindnesses toward us because of your grace but never stretching ourselves day after day that our faith would be there that our prayer would be there Lord indeed we do not see you and yet you are with us we cannot hear the sound of your physical voice but we know your promises And though we have not seen you, we know that we can trust you. And I pray then 
that that trust wouldn't wax and wane, that our fellowship with you wouldn't be just temporal and passing, but that even now, as we don't see you, that we would walk faithfully with you day after day, setting our eyes and our hope on you because this world, it is opposed to our faith. And give us then the strength to stand in the midst of it. Faithful, true, loving to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.